Hi, listeners. It's Kate from the Spotify original from Parcast, Dictators. Like many of the figures we cover on our show, J. Edgar Hoover had a thirst for control that couldn't be satisfied until he reached the top. As the first director of the FBI, Hoover used his authority to admonish anyone he felt broke the law. But with great power often comes great corruption and even greater conspiracies. Carter and I are thrilled to bring you this special six-part crossover from Dictators and Conspiracy Theories on the life and career of J. Edgar Hoover. You can hear about more of history's most feared leaders by following Dictators free on Spotify. June 2nd, 1919 was a quiet night in Washington, D.C. Over on 2132 R Street, Northwest, Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer prepared to call it a night. At around 11.15 p.m., he strolled upstairs to join his sleeping wife. But then he heard a loud thud from outside. He turned and made his way toward the front door when suddenly a bomb erupted. The explosion tore apart the front porch. It shattered Palmer's windows as well as his neighbors. Luckily, the AG, his wife, and a few nearby pedestrians were unscathed. Only one person was harmed in the bombing, and his corpse now lay in pieces along R Street. The victim was the would-be assassin himself. He had stumbled and fallen when he tried to place the bomb on Palmer's porch and it detonated. The next day, Palmer surveyed the wreckage. As he took in the damage, it was clear to him that America was under attack, but not by the Germans, who the U.S. had just helped defeat in World War I. Instead, Palmer believed radical leftists were responsible for the bombing, and as attorney general, He vowed to defeat the so-called Red Menace before they could incite any more terror. Palmer was going to war, and by his side was a young lawyer named J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover's crusade against communism would continue for the rest of his life, and in the process, he would become one of the most powerful men in American history. Welcome to J. Edgar Hoover, a six-part ParCast special presented by Dictators and Conspiracy Theories. I'm your host, Carter. And I'm your host, Kate. Over the course of this series, we're diving into the life, legacy, and notoriety of America's most well-known and possibly most hated FBI director. You can find all episodes of Dictators, Conspiracy Theories, and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Today, we begin our dive into the career of J. Edgar Hoover. We'll explore why he dedicated his life to fighting communism and how he became director of the Bureau of Investigation. Next time, we'll discuss how Hoover exploited the rise in crime during the Great Depression to build up the FBI as the nation's number one law enforcement agency. As his power grew, he used it to surveil anyone he wanted. 
even after it was declared illegal. We'll have all that and more right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. A. Mitchell Palmer's house was bombed because he was the Attorney General. Terrorists specifically picked him to send a message. But he wasn't their only target. In April of 1919, bombs had been sent to multiple prominent Americans, from politicians to industry men like John D. Rockefeller. And on the night of the attempt on Palmer, nine explosives went off in eight cities across the country. Though there were a few casualties, none of the targets were killed. These attacks were carried out by anarchists in retribution for the arrest of one of their leaders, Luigi Galliani. Galliani, an Italian immigrant, faced deportation for violating the newly passed Immigration Act of 1918, which amended a 1903 iteration of the law to expand the definition of and restrictions on anarchists, one of four groups targeted by the earlier law. Anarchists broadcasted their intention to use violence if Galliani wasn't released. In January 1919, they posted flyers around New England mill towns that proclaimed, Deportation will not stop the storm from reaching these shores. Deport us, we will dynamite you. So it didn't come as a shock that anti-government leaflets signed by the so-called anarchist fighters were scattered among the wreckage of the Palmer House. And yet, despite the evidence, many Americans decided that the real menace behind the attacks was a different group altogether, communists. On some level, the conflation made sense. Anarchists and communists both want the end of the state, although they have different goals and methods for how to go about it. And in Palmer's eyes, communists were the bigger threat, because on a global stage, they were more successful. In 1917, just a couple years before the Palmer incident, communists had taken control of Russia. 
U.S. politicians immediately feared that communism would infect their nation as well. Fueling this fear was the Communist International, or Comintern. Led by Moscow, the group advocated for communists to overthrow capitalist governments around the world. So when anarchists sent bombs to prominent Americans, many believed that they had gotten their orders from communists. However, there was one problem with that assumption. There was no evidence linking American anarchists to Moscow. Still, that didn't stop Palmer from going to Congress with claims of a vast communist conspiracy to overthrow the U.S. government. He even alleged a specific date for the so-called revolution, the 4th of July, 1919. Palmer claimed that the only way to prevent this was for Congress to increase the Justice Department's annual budget to $2 million, a $500,000 increase. Congress approved it. Flush with cash, Palmer created what would eventually be called the General Intelligence Division. In essence, the GID collated information on so-called radicals within various federal law enforcement agencies, as well as spies and informants across the country. Looking for a man to lead the division, DOJ Chief Investigator Francis Garvin recommended J. Edgar Hoover. Ambitious, organized, and detailed, the 24-year-old Justice Department lawyer had made a name for himself pursuing German agents during World War I. Garvin liked what Hoover did, and thanks to his recommendation, Palmer appointed Hoover as chief of the GID. Hoover's life mission was to root out what he saw as communist subversion, and that desire fueled his over 50-year career. At the outset, J. Edgar Hoover's career as a Washington bureaucrat was nothing more than maintaining family tradition. His father, grandfather, and brother all had government jobs. Life for a Hoover man was simple, become a civil servant and climb the ranks. But career was seemingly the only connection Hoover had with his father. He was more emotionally connected to his mother, Annie Marie. She was a strict disciplinarian who, according to historian Curtis Gentry, dominated the household and held old-fashioned virtues. Annie indoctrinated Hoover with those values. As such, Hoover would come to believe that any form of progress or break from tradition was a threat to society. As a young man, Hoover wasn't particularly athletic, but he was smart. In high school, he excelled at debate. He learned to speak quickly and overwhelm his opponents. He also had an acute ability to identify weak points in others' arguments. Both those traits would allow him to climb the sought-after bureaucratic ladder and never let it go once he was at the top. After high school, Hoover enrolled in night classes for a law degree at George Washington University. He also got a job at the Library of Congress. Hoover chose GWU specifically because they offered an accelerated program for government employees. It paid off. By spring 1917, he had both graduated and passed the District of Columbia Bar. He was only 22. 
A few months later, he got his foot in the ultimate door, the Department of Justice. Not long after joining the DOJ, Hoover was charged with leading the Enemy Alien Registration Section. Essentially, his job was to gather intelligence on German immigrants and determine whether or not they should be interned. Hoover relished this level of power. According to historian Ted Morgan, Hoover gained a reputation as more than willing to send men and women twice his age behind barbed wire with a stroke of the pen. Hoover became so trigger-happy that his boss occasionally had to override him. Still, such tenacity wasn't lost among Hoover's superiors. Sure, they might have thought he was a little too eager, but he got the job done. So, when anarchists sent bombs to politicians and businessmen throughout 1919, J. Edgar Hoover was the perfect man to lead the hunt. And on August 1st, A. Mitchell Palmer officially appointed Hoover as Chief of the General Intelligence Division. The job was simple. Since Palmer believed that the vast majority of communists were foreigners, the solution was to use the GID to detain those immigrants in mass raids and deport them. However, Palmer faced some major obstacles. First, contrary to his belief, most radicals were actually U.S. citizens. Second, deportation fell under the jurisdiction of the Secretary of Labor, not the Attorney General. And finally, because the U.S. was no longer at war, the Sedition Act, which made those who expressed disloyalty to the government a crime, was soon set to expire. This meant outwardly sharing radical political opinions wouldn't be illegal. But that didn't stop Palmer and Hoover. By now, Hoover had explored Marxist and Leninist theories. He was convinced that communism was, quote, the most evil, monstrous conspiracy against man since time began. Meanwhile, Palmer convinced the Secretary of Labor to help with the raids. Palmer proposed that he take on the financial and investigative aspects and the Labor Department sign off on the warrants. The Secretary agreed. From there, Palmer and Hoover devised a two-pronged attack. First, they'd enact a practice raid. Then they'd conduct an official one based on lessons learned. For the practice raid, they targeted the Federation of the Union of Russian Workers, or URW. The URW convened in meeting halls across the U.S. Technically, the group did promote what would have been considered a subversive platform and was home to plenty of Russian immigrant communists, socialists, and anarchists. But in the wake of the 1917 Russian Revolution, most of the leading radicals returned home. By 1919, the URW was basically a social club. Hoover conveniently ignored this. He also ignored the fact that there was zero connection between the URW and the anarchist bombings. On November 7, 1919, federal agents and local police raided URW headquarters across 12 cities. In total, 452 suspected radicals were arrested. Of that group, 246 were ordered to be deported. 
The public overwhelmingly approved of the raid. Palmer in particular received letters of praise from American citizens and was referred to by the New York Times as a lion-hearted man. Hoover capitalized on the moment. He wanted to enhance his own reputation, and the best way to do that was to catch a white whale, or two. Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman were two notorious Russian-born anarchists. In 1917, both were imprisoned for opposing the draft during World War I. Two years later, they were set to be released, but Hoover wanted them deported. Arguing for Berkman's deportation was easy because in 1892, he'd attempted to assassinate industrialist Henry Clay Frick. And in the years that followed, he consistently advocated for violence. The case against Emma Goldman, or the Red Queen of Anarchy as she was known, was trickier. Goldman preached non-violence. She had a more philosophical approach to anarchism. Plus, she was a naturalized citizen. But Hoover had a plan to circumvent the technicalities. Back in 1901, Leon Czałgosz, an anarchist of Polish descent, assassinated President William McKinley. Law enforcement had tried to pin the assassination on Goldman, but they couldn't. Not directly, at least. Leon Chowgosh had met Goldman on two occasions. However, at no point during those meetings did Goldman suggest that he assassinate the president. And in his written confession, he admitted to acting alone. J. Edgar Hoover had a simple solution for this. Evidence tampering. During Goldman's 1919 deportation hearing, Hoover submitted an edited copy of Chowgosh's detailed statement to a district attorney to make it appear as though Goldman did inspire the assassination. Goldman's fate was sealed, along with over 200 of her comrades. On December 21, 1919, nearly 250 immigrants were boarded onto the SS Buford. Dubbed the Soviet Ark, the ship contained 184 members of the URW, plus 51 anarchists not associated with the group, including Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman. Hoover himself watched the ship's departure and waved goodbye to the Red Queen. His power was snowballing, especially as the public praised this apparent win. But as quickly as Hoover's power grew, it could fade. Coming up, the Palmer Raids jeopardize J. Edgar Hoover's burgeoning career. They're role models, nurturers, and to many, the ultimate best friend. But what happens when Mommy Dearest has a dark side, one that's more criminal than caring? Find out in the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. 
Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Malicious Moms. Every Sunday on Spotify, join me for a closer look at the moms who took their maternal instincts to illegal extremes. A beloved actress who would do anything for her child. A jilted ex who used her kids to take deadly revenge. Plus, a wife, a mistress, and an altercation with an axe you have to hear to believe. In this ParCast collection, learn the dire lengths some women went to help their children and how others used motherhood to carry out their misdeeds. Sometimes true crime can be a real mother. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. At the end of 1919, a ship filled with 249 alleged political dissidents sailed out of New York. As head of the General Intelligence Division, J. Edgar Hoover spurred this mass deportation. He himself was the primary accuser. Hoover's claims were total baloney. None of the people aboard the Soviet Ark including infamous anarchist Emma Goldman, were actually plotting a communist coup. Still, in the midst of the first Red Scare, public opinion overwhelmingly supported the deportations. And with that support, Hoover, alongside Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer, knew that the next raid would be even bigger. Instead of going after another immigrant social club, Hoover set his sights on the nation's two leading communist groups, the Communist Party of America and the Communist Labor Party. Unlike the URW, these groups did advocate for the violent overthrow of the government. Not to mention, both parties received funding from Moscow. He obtained 3,000 arrest warrants for the group's members. On the evening of January 2nd, 1920, one of the largest mass arrests in U.S. history occurred. Across the nation, federal agents and local police raided pool halls, clubhouses, cafes, homes, and even schools. Even though Hoover only had 3,000 warrants, it's believed that between 6,000 and 10,000 people were arrested. These people faced horrendous jail conditions. Many were crammed together, sharing beds and a single toilet. In Boston, one man was so traumatized, he died by suicide. But public opinion was positive toward the Palmer Raids, as they became known. The New York Times even proclaimed that anyone who doubted or questioned the raid should approve and applaud the DOJ. The nation's eyes turned to Palmer as the next Democratic presidential nominee. With America on their side, Palmer and Hoover could act with impunity. So while thousands of alleged dissidents awaited their fate, Hoover planned more raids. 
In particular, he targeted the International Workers of the World, a large labor union with radical leanings. But soon, labor department officials began to second-guess the deportation warrants they were being asked to sign off on. As more and more cases came across their desks, it got more difficult to find any real evidence of an imminent, violent revolution. Beginning in March, the Labor Department quietly canceled many of the warrants. When all was said and done, less than 500 arrest warrants remained. Meanwhile, the public tide began to turn against Hoover and Palmer. It started in April when the two men publicly warned that the long-awaited communist revolution would occur on May 1, 1920. To prepare, U.S. troops were dispatched to some major cities, and local police all over the country, especially in New York, were placed on high alert. But when May 1st rolled around, there wasn't so much as a strike. The press soon turned on Palmer. The Indianapolis News reported he was, quote, something of an alarmist. Making matters worse, Hoover and Palmer were still unable to link the 1919 anarchist bombings to their alleged communist conspiracy. In fact, in February and March of 1920, two anarchists in Brooklyn were arrested in connection to the leaflets found at Palmer's house. Though it took weeks of coercion, both confessed to printing the leaflets. But neither were found to have taken orders from Moscow. By that summer, the first Red Scare fizzled out with nothing to show but thousands of lives ruined and the limits of governmental power stretched. If there was one positive outcome, the Red Scare destroyed A. Palmer Mitchell's career. He became a pariah. All hopes of a presidential run dashed. Hoover, on the other hand, refused defeat. He downplayed his role in the raids during congressional hearings. Since Palmer had been the public face of the Red Scare, Hoover was able to slink back into the shadows and quietly continue his hunt for communists. After the Red Scare, Hoover gathered files at an alarming rate. In October of 1919, he had roughly 150,000 files. By 1921, the count would balloon to 450,000. Despite Hoover's continued crusade, his job was soon in jeopardy. In November 1920, Warren G. Harding was elected president, and his new attorney general, Harry Doherty, vowed to clean house. But Doherty himself didn't have the best reputation in Washington. A lobbyist from Ohio, he reeked of D.C. corruption. Hoover knew he could capitalize on Doherty's shaky ground, so he cozied up to the AG in order to keep his job. Hoover told Doherty that he didn't just have intel on communists and anarchists, but on President Harding's political enemies as well, and he would gladly share what he had. Doherty liked what he heard. When the new AG purged the Justice Department, Hoover was not only spared, but promoted. In one of the most consequential acts in 20th century American history, 26-year-old J. Edgar became the assistant director of the Bureau of Investigation, or BI. 
what would later become the FBI. For an organization supposedly dedicated to enacting justice through truth, the Bureau of Investigation was founded on deception. In 1907, A.G. Charles Joseph Bonaparte, grandnephew of Napoleon I, requested permission from Congress to establish a, quote, small permanent detective force. Bonaparte believed there should be a federal agency that prosecuted so-called crimes against the United States, but he needed money and men, meaning they would have to borrow Secret Service agents. However, Congress saw the inherent danger of a secret police. They thought it could be abused for political reasons. Nor did they want to spy on Americans' private lives, which they gathered was Bonaparte's intention. Bonaparte reassured them the agency would be small and only investigate crimes, not solicit gossip. But Congress wasn't buying it. And since they didn't trust Bonaparte, they also banned the DOJ from using department funds to poach Secret Service agents for the upcoming fiscal year, which began on July 1, 1908. So Bonaparte went over Congress's head. He appealed to President Theodore Roosevelt, who favored the idea. While Congress was in recess, Roosevelt soon signed an executive order giving Bonaparte authority to create what would become the Bureau of Investigation. Ahead of the game, Bonaparte had already hired nine Secret Service agents who recently quit their posts. The date of hiring? June 30th, the day before Congress's financial ban went into effect. When Congress returned from recess, they were naturally angry at what Bonaparte and Roosevelt had done. However, because 1908 was an election year, no one in Congress wanted to appear soft on crime, so they acquiesced. Since other federal agencies had their own detectives, the B.I. picked up the scraps. It could investigate banking and antitrust crimes, crimes on Native American reservations, and interstate commerce crimes. Eventually, Congress added interstate auto theft and prostitution to the list. Ironically, Prostitution gave the B.I. a foot in the door to investigate Americans' private lives, one of the main things Congress had wanted to avoid. By the time A.G. Doherty promoted Hoover into the B.I. in 1921, the Bureau wasn't anything special. It searched for German spies and draft dodgers during World War I, but beyond that, its jurisdiction was minimal. Even though Doherty kept his promise to clean house of corruption, he himself was one of the biggest culprits. He filled the Justice Department and the B.I. with political cronies and grifters, which led to a rise in bribery and extortion. It got so bad that Hoover, who prided himself on his name and image, refused to admit that he worked at the B.I. But the summer of 1923 seemed to damn the flow of corruption. On August 2nd, President Harding died, and Calvin Coolidge assumed the role. Coolidge forced A.G. Doherty to resign and replaced him with Harlan Fisk Stone. At the outset, Stone's appointment as A.G. could not have been worse for J. Edgar Hoover. Stone described the B.I. as lawless, brutal, and tyrannical. 
he vocally criticized the Palmer raids and vowed to clean up the B.I. and Justice Department. Stone forced the B.I.'s director to resign. As assistant director, it seemed likely that Hoover would follow. However, Hoover had friends in high places, and throughout Washington, he was hailed for his ability to stand up to politicians. Unlike the corrupt men before him, if Hoover was director, he likely wouldn't bow to political pressure. On May 10, 1924, Stone summoned Hoover to his office. The AG told Hoover that he was making him acting director of the Bureau of Investigation. He wanted to see if the young rising star could handle the job. Hoover accepted. Stone may have offered the job on a temp basis, but 29-year-old Hoover vowed to earn the permanent title, and he wouldn't let anyone stand in his way. Coming up, Hoover uses an American hero's tragedy for fame. Now back to the story. By 1924, J. Edgar Hoover had curried enough favor in Washington to be appointed acting director of the Bureau of Investigation. He resolved to make the appointment permanent. Attorney General Stone made it clear he was watching Hoover's every move. This wasn't just an idle threat, either. A few days into Hoover's new role, Stone sent him a six-point memo outlining his changes for the B.I. He instructed Hoover to cull incompetent agents and replace them with men of good character and standing. Preferably, they would also have a legal background. He also told the acting director to get his approval on all future investigations. Hoover was more than willing to carry out these demands. Over the next seven months, he purged the Bureau. Some agents were fired outright, while others quit because they didn't like the heightened standards. Hoover introduced a strict chain of command, which reorganized the previous four divisions into six. Agents' performances were assessed on merit instead of favoritism. These rigorous reviews were especially targeted at SACs, or special agents in charge, the heads of BI offices across the country. In Hoover's view, agents were his representatives. As such, they were to perform and act as he himself performed and acted. But Hoover wasn't completely domineering. He listened to suggestions from subordinates. One of the most important came from an accountant. After taking a police science course, the accountant helped initiate the birth of the BI laboratory. By August 1924, A.G. Stone was pleased with Hoover's work and considered giving him the director role permanently. But there were still two men standing in Hoover's way. The first was the head of the American Civil Liberties Union, Roger Baldwin. The ACLU had recently reported on the abuses of power within the Bureau and the General Intelligence Division. It accused them of spying on Americans through wiretaps, mail openings, and burglaries. Hoover needed to show that he could keep his house in order, so he agreed to sit down with Baldwin to clear the air. 
He believed that if he could ease Baldwin's fears, then perhaps the ACLU would dial back the criticism. During the meeting, Hoover did most of the talking. At first, he distanced himself from the Palmer raids, claiming that he was an unwilling participant. Then he promised that spying was a thing of the past. In fact, Hoover told Baldwin that he was going to disband the GID altogether and that he would personally end the infiltration of political parties and labor unions. Baldwin bought it hook, line, and sinker. Hoover did keep his word when it came to dissolving the GID. However, he did so only on paper and kept spying on alleged radicals. He simply created a new filing system for these operations, the infamous Official and Confidential Files. For the rest of Hoover's life, only a handful of people would see the contents of these files. With Baldwin out of the way, Hoover still had one more enemy to contend with, William Wild Bill Donovan, the Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division. Technically, the B.I. fell under the auspices of the Criminal Division of the Justice Department. This meant that Wild Bill Donovan was Hoover's direct superior, and Hoover despised Donovan. Donovan was an ambitious World War I hero with eyes on the Oval Office. For him, life as a civil servant was nothing more than a stepping stone to the presidency. And unfortunately for Hoover, Donovan was a meddler. He often undermined Hoover's policies and procedures. It didn't take long for Hoover to jot Donovan's name onto his list of enemies and create a file on him. Meanwhile, Donovan studied up on Hoover's past with the GID. While he'd previously thought little of his subordinate, he now began to view him as outright dangerous. So much so that he actually urged A.G. Stone to fire Hoover. But luckily for Hoover, Stone ignored this advice. It seemed Hoover's work cleaning up the Bureau had earned the A.G.'s full trust. On December 10, 1924, Stone officially announced that J. Edgar Hoover was the new director of the Bureau of Investigation. Two months after the appointment, an opportunity arose for Hoover to get back at Wild Bill Donovan and get him out of his hair for good. In February of 1925, Stone became an associate Supreme Court justice. Just before Stone's resignation as AG went into effect, Hoover expressed his fears that the Bureau may, in the future, fall victim to the whims of politicians. He appealed to Stone that it would be a shame if all the work they'd done went to waste. With the seeds of doubt planted, Stone reorganized the chain of command. From now on, the director of the Bureau would answer directly to the Attorney General. The order was one of the last things Stone did as AG. In effect, Hoover had quietly committed his first of many coups. As permanent director, Hoover made the Bureau his entire life. His dedication ultimately made the Bureau one of the more well-oiled government agencies. But if there was one thing the Bureau was missing, 
It was a splashy case, one that could make front-page headlines. Due to the Bureau's limited jurisdiction, none of its early cases captured the American public's imagination. Beyond spying on radicals, a good chunk of its investigations involved police corruption and brutality, which weren't exactly riveting tales of heroism. For seven years, Hoover searched for that newsworthy job. Finally, on the evening of March 1, 1932, he got the call that would propel the Bureau to glory. Charles Lindbergh's infant son had been kidnapped. Lindbergh was an American aviator and one of the most famous people in the world. In 1927, at the age of 25, he made history as the first person to fly across the Atlantic. He was an American hero. So, when Lindbergh and his wife discovered their 20-month-old son, Charles Jr., missing from his nursery with a ransom note in his place, all systems were a go. However, the Bureau didn't actually have jurisdiction over the case. At the time, kidnapping wasn't a federal crime. It was a job for the New Jersey State Police. Legally, Hoover could only provide unofficial assistance. But Hoover knew what it would mean if the Bureau recovered Charles Jr. It would silence Hoover's critics and propel the Bureau into the spotlight as the nation's premier investigative agency. If anyone was going to arrest the kidnappers, it was going to be one of his men. Unfortunately for Hoover, the state and local police quickly caught on to his intentions. The lead investigators refused to share much of their evidence and intelligence with Hoover's so-called federal glory hunters. A month later, Hoover's men were the last to find out that the Lindberghs intended to pay the ransom. On April 2nd, the Lindberghs gave $50,000 in cash and gold certificates to an unidentified man in a Bronx cemetery. However, the man did not return their child. Frustrated and annoyed, Hoover lobbied for the White House to put the Bureau in charge. But his plea fell on deaf ears. On May 12th, Charles Jr.'s body was discovered. Worse, he was found only a few miles from Lindbergh's house. And all signs indicated that the child had been dead for two months. He was killed shortly after his kidnapping. In the wake of the shocking tragedy, President Herbert Hoover announced that every federal agency would now help track down the killers. Meanwhile, Congress passed the Lindbergh Law, rendering kidnapping a federal crime under the jurisdiction of the Bureau of Investigation. The tide had turned in J. Edgar Hoover's favor. He intended to use the Lindbergh case to show what his bureau was capable of. The investigation ran cold for two years, but a break finally came in the fall of 1934, when one of the gold certificates from the ransom money turned up at a bank in Manhattan. Eventually, law enforcement had their man, a German carpenter named Bruno Hauptmann. He was arrested and convicted of murdering Charles Lindbergh Jr. In April 1936, he was executed. 
Charles Lindbergh praised the Treasury Department for its due diligence in tracking the ransom money. But Hoover was mad that he wasn't being praised as the hero. According to Curtis Gentry, Hoover apparently never forgave Lindbergh for the slight. In the end, the Lindbergh case didn't turn out the way Hoover had hoped. While it did thrust the Bureau into the limelight, the amount of time it took to capture Hauptmann only called into question the Bureau's ability to work efficiently. But the Lindbergh case created a ripple effect. Amid the Great Depression, desperate people realized that ransom was a lucrative business. In the months following the Lindbergh kidnapping, copycats sprang up around the country. In 1933, the spike in kidnappings and ransoms gave way to a wave of bank robberies all across the Midwest. Hoover sensed an opportunity. By turning his attention toward men like John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, and Machine Gun Kelly, he could finally catapult the Bureau to acclaim and solidify himself as the most powerful man in the United States. Thanks for tuning in. Next time, we'll delve into the hunt for Depression-era gangsters and how it helped Hoover build up the FBI. And as Hoover acquired more power, he used it to return to his anti-communist crusade. Among the many sources we used, we found Curtis Gentry's J. Edgar Hoover, The Man and the Secrets, and Tim Weiner's Enemies, A History of the FBI, especially useful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators, Conspiracy Theories, and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Conspiracy Theories and Dictators are Spotify originals from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This special episode of Conspiracy Theories and Dictators was written by Joe Guerra with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Kate Gallagher. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero and research by Brian Petrus. This special episode of Conspiracy Theories and Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Carter Roy. For many, Sunday is a special day spent with family. That makes it the perfect time to check out the Spotify original from ParCast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every Sunday in this ParCast collection, join me for an intimate look at the matriarchs who were far more criminal than caring. Warning, this isn't your mother's podcast. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. Spotify.